In business and life, relationships are everything. Welcome to the People Catalyst Podcast, where we interview top business leaders and learn how they build relationships with their teams, clients, and those that promote and refer them. Here's your host, business trainer and leader of the People Catalyst team, Carla Nelson. And welcome to the People Catalyst Podcast, Rod Brown. Oh, good morning. Good morning, sir. It's so nice to have you on the show. Oh, I'm excited to uh, be here with you. Yeah. Well, after our first introduction, we have a, a friend in common. Uh, Rod and I had the most incredible conversation around not only diversity and inclusion, but this work um, focus solution uh, that Rodney has developed over the past. Well, you can share that story in a little bit. And but what first, let's start out, uh, Rod, what what? It has been your journey in this really interesting work that you're doing and a very interesting approach to how you're solving it, which I think makes so much sense because the object of the exercise in business is to get something done, right? So having a work-orientated approach and a kinesthetic approach uh, is a really, really cool, fascinating thing. So if you could share a little bit about your story, that'd be great. Oh, uh, yeah, the entrepreneurial story. Uh goes very, very quickly and in depth. Uh, uh, I always say I started out even as a young kid being an entrepreneur from shining shoes and mowing lawns and all of that. Mm -hmm. But professionally, uh, where it really took off uh, for me is I've always looked at business as a tool and a methodology for improving society. And that's why I wanted to be a businessman. And plus they, you know, at the time when business people wore suits, they were always wearing suits and they looked great. And I said, man, they look good. I want to be this, this business person. <laughs> so uh, I got into uh, uh, business, into the corporate arena and uh, got into the tech industry and during the real early years and saw how that went and joined a company that had a, uh, a similar vision that I had and that is uh, bringing social responsibility and business together. Uh, he was way ahead of his time, uh, a gentleman by the name of Bill Norris, who founded Control Data, so that's going way back, but they were one of the biggest mainframe computers uh, during that era. So I left there and went to uh, another big corporation. But uh, before that, I started my own consulting business back then, uh, helping small businesses and taking several of them national, and some of them are still doing very well today in the national company. And then from that, I went back into the corporate world because I wanted to learn about technology. And I also wanted to learn about process. And at that time, this was back in the days when uh, Xerox was a blue chip organization and they'd lost all their market share to the Japanese. And uh, the Japanese had enough vision to uh, incorporate uh, Edward Deming's uh, uh, principles of quality in Six Sigma. And of course they dominated the industry but Xerox took those same principles and regained their market share back to 60%. So everyone wanted to hear how Xerox did it. And so I joined them because uh, number one, their process, I wanted to understand what this process was. Yeah, and because two, Edward Stemming, 94% of failure is process failure, not people failure. So I love well, that, that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And also uh, Xerox was a leader in this whole diversity thing. And they had the highest ranking African-American uh, leader at that time, his name was Barry Rand. And before Barry Rand, there were not any high ranking in Fortune 500 senior executive. 
So I thought, here's a company I can go. If I do really great work, uh, they're going to reward me for my performance. So I thought I'd go there and learn and then come back into the entrepreneurial world. But I stayed there for 10 years. And what I learned there was, was quite a bit. It was a culture that, yes, was focused on diversity, but it also was a culture that became so internally focused that they lost sight of their marketplace. And of course, the rise of Apple and the rise of Microsoft and all that, all those products were really generated out of Palo Alto Research Center. And we could not bring the organization together in a cohesive way to really take advantage of the next wave of technology. And there was even big articles were written about it in the Harvard Business Review that Paul Allaire did called the, the Crisis of Opportunity. I never will forget that article. And he tried really hard. And we even brought some of Lou Gershner's protégés over to try to get the company moving in that direction. But that's where I learned that culture uh, can really, as, a, as I guess Drucker said, culture can eat strategy for lunch, right? Taking an old phrase. But it also taught me about what went wrong and what could have been different and what do companies need to do to really not fall into that trap. Because we see Microsoft now a little bit tripping over themselves. We see Google beginning to start to trip over themselves. And even Apple, yeah, they're making money. They've got these market positions. But their biggest fear is, uh, is what happens in these big uh, organizations. And they become so big and they become internal. They become bureaucratic and they lose their competitive edge. And so how do you do that? How do you try to maintain that? And so that's the work that I... Uh, that I'm doing and how I got into it and in terms of my entrepreneurial piece. And so I left uh, there, went into the software industry and in the Silicon Valley with PeopleSoft and Oracle, then left there, started my own uh, technology company again and uh, learned quite a few lessons along the way about how business is done behind closed doors. And when you start talking about billion dollar opportunities and putting deals together, you really get to see the true nature of some people that don't know how to respond to opportunity. And unfortunately, uh, you know, those things can get in the way and they can kill a deal. Mm -hmm. And so uh, then I went into the nonprofit because, you know, here, here's this guy that loves business, but at the same time wants to see it do well in society. So I went into nonprofit, went to one of the largest organizations there and realized, hey, this is another industry, it's another business. And the focus is more on the organizational uh, success than the community success. And so all of that left me sort of, uh, uh, you know, dismayed about the whole structure of how businesses and nonprofits and how we're just so focused internally at the expense of the societal good. Henceforth, VUCA comes. But anyway, that was my journey. And let me just pause there. And, you yeah, know, well, you know, you touch on something great. I love what you say about the nonprofit and for-profit. You know, for a long time, I've always said that nonprofits need to look a little bit more like for-profits and for-profits need to look a little bit more like nonprofits because uh, there, it, there has to be a balance. You have to be sustainable, but then you also want to make a difference. And so you, know, you have to balance those two things. I think Absolutely. it's really important and gets lost on both sides. Absolutely. Um, and you, you touched on a word that I want you to expand on that we hear, but maybe not everybody understands exactly what it is or, you know, the components. Can you share a little bit about what you just stated there with VUCA? Yeah, VUCA is a term that originated uh, in the, uh, the military, our uh, military force. And it really sort of, 
came out of this, uh, and, and General Stanley McChrystal really writes on this subject very good in his book, Team of Teams. But it's really about the challenge that the military was having with dealing with a new enemy and a new structure that was driven by technology. And so the old hierarchical methods of which, uh, of course, the military is the example of a hierarchy, right? And very few people are aware that the military has changed from a hierarchical structure to what they call and develop what's called a shape-shifting organization structure. And what they learned when they were going after Al-Qaeda, and you see how many years, and it's still, there's still remnants of it going on, over 20 years of fighting that war, was nothing like the prior wars of Vietnam or the war of uh, World War II or World War I, where these things, uh, you had a hierarchical structure and they were pretty much matched. Here was a very clever structure that the amount of military power, the amount of military might, all of the king's horses and all the king's men <laughs> could not conquer this uh, ragtag group of uh, uh, organization. At least that's how they viewed them. And so every time they thought they had one, another one would pop up somewhere. So they got on a whiteboard and they started drawing and trying to figure out what's the structure here. And what they learned is that there's no hierarchy. It's, it's shapes and it shifts based upon the circumstances. So how do you fight that? So they had to learn how to fight that. So that was a term where VUCA uh, came up and it stands for volatile, uh, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And that is the environment of which uh, we're operating in today. Well, and I love that it's an example from the military because if there was one organization that not only had to adjust from the hierarchical uh, application, because, you know, technology makes that even more challenging, right? You've got so many more components in the, the, that you're trying to deal with, and it's changing more and more every day. Can you share the components of uh, VUCA as well? Yeah, uh, and this is my own uh, sort of uh, approach that I see. I know, but I like it. It's really, really uh, fascinating. But when you say, well, what is VUCA? Give me some examples of that. And the, on the quadrants that I developed, one is technology. And underneath that technology, of course, includes AI, uh, which I can talk about a little later, but that's really changing the fundamental way of the way we do everything. And, and, and it's changing uh, human uh, valuations of human labor. So that's one. Secondly is the wage uh, wealth gap that's occurring. And again, that's driven by technology. So you can drive money uh, with the stock market and all of these things that are being performed because of the algorithms. Boy, if you're in the right position and you have cash, uh, you can make a lot of money without having to put any investment into Main Street. And so people say, uh, you know, when you see the uh, wealth that, uh, you know, on the debates last night, I think they threw a number out that uh, the top 1% has made uh, another 300 to $400 billion just in the four month of COVID, right? So how, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because they're investing in the financial markets. And so it's in the financial markets are financial instruments that are making money on top of that. Actually, the financial markets are making two to three times what they could make in Main Street. So when you have an incentive for people with money to put it into the financial markets instead of Main Street, well, unfortunately, most people are going to go where they're going to get their highest return. And so that becomes a policy issue, although we're not going to get into that. But neither politician is talking about 
how to address or what's really driving that. Mm -hmm. So that creates a, a huge wealth gap. So that's one piece of it. The other piece that's creating this huge wealth gap is uh, the amount of displacement that is occurring and it's gonna occur at a greater pace. And that is using AI because AI is replacing a lot of positions. And it's not only gonna be the blue collar positions, but it's gonna be cognitive positions, it's gonna be legal positions, it's gonna be uh, certain medical positions. And, and so that changes the whole skills and the whole dynamic, right? And McKinsey was throwing out some numbers anywhere from 400 to 800 million. I think they've toned that down to about 350 as the latest numbers I saw. And that's a global number, but still that's a lot of people out of work. So what are you gonna do about that? So I wish people would talk about that. But that's creating uh, and technology is driving the economic value of human labor. So that's a big issue. Mm -hmm. uh, Noah Harari has written extensive and eloquently on this subject of what we're going to do with the useless society if we don't address some of these things. So that's the second part of it. The third part of it is what I call the society or the DEI. And the DEI is what's creating uh, what uh, some people call this the uh, geopolitical nationalism that's taking place not only in our own country but around the world whether you look at Russia whether you look at uh, what's happening in China if you look at what's happening in Brazil and you look at these leaders and the type of leadership that's uh, taking place right now it's based on a sort of nationalism approach and so what's driving that well what's driving that is the two areas that I talked about earlier which are the real issues have created this vacuum right and this vacuum, unfortunately, a lot of politicians have jumped in there and used the F word. And the F word is fear. And so the fear then is based, is based on people. So you gotta find an enemy. Who are the people? Is it the immigrants crossing the lines? Or is it, uh, uh, it it's the people in these foreign countries? So we gotta have an enemy, right? That, to take the focus off of where the real wealth and benefit is. And again, that's at the devaluation of human labor. And so that's creating an interesting social dynamic. So I call that the societal uh, perspective of it. And that's something that we have to address. And then the fourth piece is what's called uh, the environment. And for example, what's happening in the environment, and that includes uh, the biological things such as COVID-19, but we're getting all kinds of uh, information. Uh, nature is telling us that we're abusing the planet. Those are the big questions. And I wish someone would talk about it in leadership roles. Yeah. Well, and so let's shift there to, you know, your, uh, we've, we've spent a little bit of time on that in, a, in another call. That's why we're so intrigued to have you on uh, the podcast here is those six steps that you talk about, which again, it's not um, that you, once you go through one step that you're done, right? right. You've right. Done it's a, it's that a continuous work. loop. It's a continuous loop. And so can you share a little bit about that solution-based, um, you know, six components that you focus at that you move, uh, you know, again, as a loop fluidly through, and then so that you can understand where you're at and where your next step uh, needs to be. Oh, more than happy to. And so the journey that I've been on, as I shared with you earlier, this is an accumulation of not only my journey as an executive and working in organizations and sitting in workshops and working with consultants and seeing hundreds of millions of dollars spent with organizations uh, like Accenture and not seeing an organization change. So I've been through all of that and all the research. So what I'm sharing with you is not only a personal experience, but also has been researched and validated in terms of the things that I'm going to share here. 
And the first thing that we do is uh, we have what's called a, a workplace engagement continuum, which really establishes where an organization is at. And those, uh, the beginning of that, there's five steps in that before we get to the, the sixth. But it takes uh, an organization that starts at a tribal, a tribal level and then goes to a dynamic level. And within that, we talk about tribalism and how tribalism uh, can be a positive, but when tribalism becomes a negative, it becomes in the next stage, what we call the reactive stage, where people's mindsets uh, from the tribalism, they try to impose that on whichever new group or new market or new company, uh, and they come with their own mentality, and they're not seeking what I call uh, an equal value exchange, which means when I greet another person or another market from somewhere else, I'm I'm seeking my mindset, my culture is to understand what are the good things of this culture and what are our good things and how do we make each other better. That's not the way the market plays. That's not the way what happens in the organization. What happens is, is one group tries to dominate another and that's where the term supremacy comes from is when you don't have an equal value exchange. So we can see where organizations are at there. And then we move to other phase three there and that is what's called the uh, the benefit stage or the uh, organic stage of where the organization really sees and appreciates the benefit of diversity. And I'm not just talking identity diversity, which is important and extremely important because there's been policies and, and, uh, and government regulations and there's still behaviors and there's still ghosts in these systems that still perpetuate it although legally they don't exist like they did uh, uh, before and the laws have been changed and people will argue about that. But if you get into these arguments, uh, left or right or whatever side you're, you're looking at, the one point that they both agree on is that there is historical uh, ramifications of systemic isms here. And so those organizations that understand that uh, are in that what I call the, the benefit stage and they're doing things to really bring people in. But it's usually at the identity, or and it's usually because they got pressure or there was some reaction that caused them to say, okay, we better get more people in. For example, uh, let's take Nike. Nike uh, uh, saw and sees the benefit of having a diverse uh, workforce and having diversity and seeing what's going on with this Black Lives Movement and I'm not talking about the Black Lives organization because there's a lot of things that I don't uh, agree with with that, the organizational context, but I do agree with what the movement is about and that is recognizing what's taking place there. And Nike got out in front of it. And, and what happened is when they brought in Colin uh, Kaepernick and they said, okay, we're gonna promote, we see what you're doing, you're gonna be proud of our brand, what happened? Well, what happened is the people internally said, well, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, you're not taking care of business inside here. And so uh, I don't know why you're going out and, and, and purporting that you're this company that's progressive and doing these things. And this is typical in these organizations when they move from a reactive stage and then they move into what they say is a benefit without dealing with some of the culture. So then they need to move to what I call this organic or the humane stage. And this is the point where the company recognizes the whole individual and they incorporate the whole individual. And it's what I call getting the individual to do uh, the 24-8. And this 24-8 term that I use is, you get uh, the whole person for the eight hours that they're there to work. 
And boy, wouldn't you love to get that? But it's creating that environment because you create an environment where people feel recognized, they feel valued, and they're tangibly re re rewarded with it. Yeah, and, and I love that piece too because we do that same thing at the People Catalyst with putting people in the part of the work that they do well. That one thing creates and shifts the culture as far as value because so many times, you know, we see people are held in their smallness instead of their magnificence. And so how absolutely. It's so critical and important um, to get to that, as you said, 24-8. So, okay, go ahead. And then the final one on this assessment that we, we do is what we call the dynamic stage. And that's where majority of conscious-oriented organizations are trying to get to. And simply the dynamic stage is having a structure of humanity uh, 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 with high performance within that organization, right? With the agility and resiliency, uh, some of the buzzwords that the consulting organizations are using and, and uh, the new literature and the new training is all around that. And what we're trying to do is reinforce humanity and have high performance uh, uh, people in that organization. It becomes dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. And people are excited, they're doing things. They're not fearful about what they're saying and the retribution they're gonna have or walking on eggshells. If mm -hmm. I say this, if I do that, no, they're focused on the work. And that's where a lot of the programs and these initiatives that are well-meaning by very good and educated and brilliant consultants, where it misses. And if it doesn't focus on the work and it just focuses on the program, guess what? Uh, you're not going to change the culture. You can change the individual, but understand that the individual, if he's working within a system or he or she is working within a system, that system is going to overwhelm any individual changes that they have. So what ended up happening is one of two things. They got to training, but they're back to business as usual, or they end up leaving. Yep. So. And that doesn't, that doesn't bode well on either side. <laughs> yeah, I love exactly. that. I love that. So uh, what you just said there, the humanitarianism and high performance, and then you become dynamic. Oh my gosh. So awesome. This is just, I, I continue to learn um, so much from you. Rod, and where can our uh, listeners and viewers find some information? I know you've on your website, you've got an amazing about 18 minute video where you were um, interviewed, but where can uh, people hear more? Well, uh, probably when I get the book out next week, or not, <laughs> next, not next week, but next year, it'll probably be uh, mid-June or July. Uh, but that's, uh, you know, and I'm on all the, the Instagrams, I'm on uh, LinkedIn, I'm on- We'll make sure all, all of your- of that. Yeah, so- Definitely. Uh, but I, I've really been sort of uh, uh, involved with the client work and the writing of the book and the software thing I was telling you about. So I haven't really been out on the speaking circuit as much, but uh, I plan to change that next year, so. Well, that's very exciting, Rod. Thank you so much for sharing your brilliance and insight. We really enjoyed it. I always enjoy hearing what you have to say. Yeah, well, thank you. It's been a joy and really enjoy your program, enjoyed your energy, enjoyed uh, uh, getting to know you and hope that uh, we can continue to do some things together in the future. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the People Catalyst podcast. And remember... It's a good life.